portion in there as we're singing, and uh, where it says, uh, he took these rags and made them beautiful. And I don't know how, how that speaks to you. Because, again, when you think of rags, I think of, you know, the rags in my garage, you know. <laughs> I, I was doing something uh, yesterday, and I had this T-shirt that was in the garage, and it has, it's just a rag. And I was thinking about that. If everything that I've put on this shirt, from oil to paint to all that stuff, can you imagine all of a sudden I got home and it's brand new same shirt and it's like how, how do you do that God and why why would you do that that you would take these ugly people and make them beautiful in your sight I don't know why <laughs> but he does and he's the only one that can so before I get too emotional Pastor Gary makes fun of me After a week off, we are back in the book of Acts. Pastor Daniel did an excellent job last week, and uh, whenever I'm gone, they, they kind of go through another book. And so let's get back into the book of Acts. If you will, turn to Acts chapter 25 in your Bible. Now, from here on out, we, we will be uh, going and covering whole chapters at a time, which I know is not normal for me on a Sunday morning, but if you know the book of Acts, if you understand from where we're going right now to chapter 20 through, uh, 28, there's this narrative that is going on, and Paul's, it, it's just a story that's happening. And so we're going to be covering chapters at a time, so we have three more studies after this morning in the, in the book of Acts, and then I've been praying, and I've, I, I'm, I'm probably just going to go right into the book of Romans after we're done here with the book of Acts, and it's another amazing, amazing book. Um, pray for me as I study for that. It's a very uh, intimidating book, to say the least, but hey, it's God's Word, and He's picked people like us to preach it, and so we're going to do it. So, Acts 25, I'll read the first 12 verses. Just understand we're going to be in the first 12 verses for most of the study, but we will read the rest of it. Understand that. It says now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, verse 1. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking for a favor against him that he would summons him, summons, summoned him uh, to Jerusalem while they lay an ambush, in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea, at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, 
he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go, down, go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong. And you very well know, as you very well know, if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is anything in, in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Father, bless your word, I pray. As we go through this, Lord, give us understanding, Lord, of what's going on in this situation and maybe applying it to our hearts even today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you go to verse 1 here of Acts 25, you, you have to understand, if you were with us a couple weeks ago when we finished chapter 24, that from the end of chapter 24, there's a little gap in your Bible and my Bible from verse 27 to verse 1 of the last chapter to this chapter, two years. Two years have now passed. As we learned last week, or last a couple weeks ago, in verse 27, it says, After two years, Portus, Portius, uh, Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. And so, to put things in perspective, what have you done in your life in the last two years? There's been a lot. There's been a lot that you have probably been able to do in the last two years. Now, for some of us, these last two years, man, it has just kind of dragged on. For other ones, it's like we've been so busy that, man, two years have flown by that quick. The last three or four months have lasted like two years. But so much has happened in two years. And again, I think in our lives, when things are just going slow, we're going, Lord, what is going on? And again, Paul, even though he had some freedoms in, in Caesarea, he is, he is still in prison. He had people coming and going. He could, he could visit with people. I don't know if he could go out. But for two years, nothing has been happening. Now, it doesn't tell us in Scripture here that anything bad happened to Paul in this time frame. But we do know that he was promised Rome over two years ago. He was promised to be 
or go to Rome, and yet nothing has happened. And for two stinking long years, the trip has been on hold. If God promised you that He's going to do something in your life, and you knew it, but He never gave you the time frame, (laughs) you'd be thinking about this time going, what are you doing? What are you up to, God? Because you promised that you would be doing something in my life, and yet nothing has happened, and everything seems to be put on hold. Now, not a lot is known about Porteus Festus here, but, but it does seem to give us the indication that this guy, he wanted to do what is good, he wanted to do what is right, He is in this new position as the governor, if you will, of that province. Festus, I'm sure, understands that being part of this whole thing, he will have to work with the Jewish people. He will have to work with the council, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, that has to do with religious matters. That's part of his job. That's what Felix was, was, was having to do, and he had to deal with all those kinds of things. And so the story here, the, the narrative here, tells us that, that Festus had come into the province, and after three days, he went up from, from Caesarea, and again, we see that, that phrase, going up to Jerusalem, because you always go up to Jerusalem, but he's, he's at a seaport city, and so he's going to go to a higher elevation. But be that as it may, he, he has been there now for three days, but he's going to go do business in Jerusalem. And so I'm sure he knows, when I get there, I'll probably have to meet up with the Sanhedrin, the, the, the council, if you will, just to, hey, I'm Festus, how you guys doing? And so it says that when, in verse 2, then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul and petitioned him and asked, asking a favor against him, against Paul. Festus was about to get a quick lesson on Jewish or religious politics. I don't even know how long he, he, he was there, but they began to lobby him, as lobbyists like to do, to politicians, to, to grease the skids or to, to what, what, butter the whatever it is, blind their pot, whatever it is. You know, if, you, if you're into politics, you know that lobbyists, they love doing this kind of stuff. They're really the ones that run this whole thing. And so he's getting a, a quick lesson because these lobbyists, they want a favor. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so I don't know how long it was before he got together with them, but they're already asking for a favor. It's interesting because it seems to be the first order of business when they get together to deal with the issue of this notorious criminal by the name of Paul. Again, understanding all the while it's been two years. Two years since they've been dealing with this issue. Paul, Paul, 
has been living in their heads rent-free for two years. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I'm sure you've gone through it like I go through it. When there's things going on in your life and people that have kind of like rubbed you the wrong way, they live in your head rent-free <laughs> for quite a while. The, <laughs> Paul has been living in their heads rent-free for two years. Something is wrong when you allow somebody to live in your head for two years rent-free. Not with them, but with you, with me. If we allow that to happen, but how often do we do that? I can understand because I go through this. A day, two days. Okay, I'll give it a week. Two weeks at the max because I'm like, Lord, help me. I don't want to think about this or help my heart. I'm sure every time the religious leaders in this time frame, because he's, he's there hunting them, every time these religious leaders met up with Felix, the previous guy, Paul was the issue. He was the topic that was always brought up. And it almost seems like Felix was always putting them off, putting them off, going, he's still in jail, he's still in prison. And now someone new has come on the scene, Festus has come on the scene, and they would like to prejudice him as soon as they can. Prejudice him in his heart so that they could get what they want from this guy. Right from the get-go. Now, when I looked at, especially these first four verses, kind of looking at the, the whole scenario, let me share with you what my mind is going through as I'm studying this, as I'm going through this, in these four, four verses especially. Knowing that it has been two years, and they could not drop this. What I looked at it here was some deep-seated hatred and unforgiveness. Deep-seated hatred and unforgiveness will rob people of a normal life. Because hatred and unforgiveness steals, cheats, and imprisons people. Not the other person. <laughs> they probably could care less. They've moved on. But you and I sometimes carry this hatred in our hearts. And we imprison them in our minds. And it's almost like you have drank the poison and you want them to die. That's how ugly it is. Because they can't, you can't let it go. Guys, for your sake, for my sake, we, I don't care how bad people have hurt you, and people hurt us all the time, and especially those who are close to us. And sometimes they are our spouses or our, or our family, our kids, our relatives. And we carry that. And you go, they have done something so bad to me. And you carry it in your mind and in your heart. That at the end of the process, you are worse than they ever, whatever they did to you. It's your, your words, especially if you're a believer. You, I'm, I'm reminded of, of, of the 
the prodigal son, remember in that story? You know, the, the, the end of that story, the juxt of it, is the fact that, that the, the good son, he was worse off than the prodigal son because he could not let it go. Instead of being happy that his, his brother has come back and is alive, he had this resentment. You've never done that for me. He is worse off than the prodigal. It, that's the moral of that story. Now, we shouldn't be prodigals just so we can hurt other people. Because <laughs> you want to live rent free in somebody else's head. Don't be that evil. Don't be that evil. But that's what I look at in this portion that for two years, these religious leaders, you would think that they had other fish to fry. You would think that there's other important issues than, than dealing with this guy. But this group was not satisfied with the fact that Paul has been ineffective, if you will, in preaching the gospel because he's in prison. Although I could uh, probably guarantee you he was still effective while he was in prison because he was not going to stop preaching the gospel. I can imagine all these Roman guards getting saved after every shift or after it's like, okay, next go around. <laughs> they weren't satisfied with him being ineffective. They wanted this guy dead. They wanted him dead, and nothing less would do. And I think when we carry hatred, it almost goes back to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. If you hate your brother in your heart, you have already murdered him. The primary objective was not that Paul should be sent to Jerusalem to stand trial. Oh, no. <laughs> They wanted to kill him before he got there. That was their little scheme. That was their plan. And I'm sure if you remember those 40 men a few weeks ago that took an oath that they were not going to eat nor drink until they killed Paul. I'm, I'm sure those 40 men were pretty hungry and pretty thirsty by now for blood. Because I'm sure these little baby girls that took that oath, those men, those babies, got out of that oath somehow or another. They did not have the guts to just die because I didn't get to kill them. Cowards, I would say. They were thirsty, man. And, and it tells us that here they're asking for this favor in verse 3 to summons Paul to Jerusalem. And then it says this, while they lay in ambush on the road to kill him. Another thing that I realize as I'm looking at these verses, something that, I, that, that just kind of stuck to me as I'm looking at it and mulling it over, was the fact that God was still at work on behalf of Paul. Understand that. God is still working on behalf of Paul, his servant. Even after two years, even though there was really nothing that we know about because nothing is written about him, he hasn't even gotten closer 
from Caesarea to, to Rome from that time because nothing is written about it. And this speaks of commitment and patience to me on the part of Paul. You see, Paul continued to trust in and on the faithfulness of God throughout this whole time. Knowing and understanding what Jesus had promised him back in Acts 23, 11. If you remember, he was, he was in, in prison or in jail there in Jerusalem, and Jesus shows up and speaks to him in 23.11. He says, but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You see, Paul didn't seem to waver, vacillate, falter during this time that he is in prison for two years. Nothing has happened. Oh, I'm sure that there might be those moments of going, Lord, did you? Did you? Yes, you did. I remember hearing your voice, Lord. But nothing is happening. And again, God has promised so many things. And there's times that there's this lull. And you almost kind of like go like, Lord, did I really hear you? We begin to doubt. And, and that is normal. Understand that. But you are not to waver, vacillate, or falter in what you do know. Because that's where you come back and say, but what did he teach me? What did he tell me? That's why it's important for us to be reading his word on a regular basis. Because he speaks to us through his word if you're reading on a regular basis. Do it systematically. Because I could guarantee you if he has spoken to you and you underlined it or you did something, he's going to confirm it again and again, even when there's nothing going on in your life. Now, I think I probably live the most exciting life, but my life is pretty boring. If you hang out with me, it's pretty boring. I'll just sit like a couch potato because I'm good at that. I'm sure my, my wife gets a little upset at times. But there's not, I just want to veg for hours. But we are not to waver from what we know that we know. And there are times, I have to do it just like you have to do it. You have to remind yourself of what the Word of God has told you already. You might not hear the voice like Paul heard the voice when the Lord showed up that day. But you got to remember that this continued to speak. It continues to speak all the time. And it's interesting because, again, we see that God is working on Paul's behalf because it says in verse 4, but Festus, after they're asking for all of this, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself <clears throat> was going there shortly. God was working in the heart of Festus, if you will. 
to not accept the premise that these religious leaders, this council, was giving. Hey, bring him over here so we could try him here. Festus had no vested interest in Paul. And yet, I don't know how familiar he is with the case. He's only been on the job for about three or four days. And all this is new to him. But he says, no, I think it's better if you guys want to. Let's go down to Caesarea. You see, never underestimate the work of God in unlikely places and with unlikely sources. Paul had no clue that, that, that Festus, as he's in Jerusalem, they are discussing him. He, I don't know if he has a clue that they still want to kill him. He's probably thinking like, oh well, you know. Unless he's heard time and time again, dude, those guys keep on asking about you, man. They want to kill you. I don't know if that's going on, but, but, but Festus, again, he's going, no, I think he needs to stay where he's at, and maybe you guys can come down with me. And so we never should underestimate how God is able to work in other people, even if they're not Christian, how he can deal in people's lives. But the nerve of these religious leaders, it's not quite clear here if they had told Festus their little stinking scheme about the ambush and killing them. I, I have to believe that they didn't say anything. It just tells us here that that's what they were thinking. Hey, bring them up here because in their mind they're thinking we're going to ambush them and kill them. Now, it would be a different story if they're going, hey, just pretend like you're bringing up and we'll kill him before he gets here. We'll get him out of your hair. He's been in Felix's hair for quite a while. That would be pretty gutsy if those guys hit him up and said, this is a favor. Bring him up here. You won't even have to deal with him. We got ways. We got people. <laughs> I, again, I don't know if, if they had that scheme, if they said it, or they just had it up their sleeve. But be that as it may, you never know what God is doing on your behalf. I think it's fantastic. Because again, we trouble ourselves with what's going on in the present, what we see, what, what, what's around us, the things that are going on. And yet, God is always at work on our behalf, whether you realize it or not. Who he might be using at the time, right now, today, for whatever is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. We never know if God, when God's already placing things in order because he needs us to do something later on if we live to be there. Whatever you might be going through today in your life. And nothing seems to be happening. And you feel like God has abandoned you. Is it possible? Could it be? Is there any proper probability that God is literally just testing you? Testing you in your resolve, your determination, 
and your steadfastness of your faith. And your faith is the one that's being tried today. The genuineness of your faith, as Peter says, being tested. In other words, if there is no fruit on the vine, will you still trust Him? When nothing seems to be happening, can you still trust that God is in control? I'm sure Festus wanted to appease, placate, and pacify the council of the Sanhedrin. But the decision was made that they come down to Caesarea. <laughs> and I'm sure that Festus probably thought, that's what, I go that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I truly believe that God was behind this whole thing. There was no reason for Paul to go back to Jerusalem. There was nothing for him there. There was no purpose for him. I think, again, God is in control here to prove to Paul that he, God, was still in control of everything in his life. And he would get him to Rome eventually. In verse 5 it says, Therefore he, Festus, said, let those who have authority among you come down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. I, I do find it ironic that all those who have the authority, these religious leaders, that think that they are all that, are just being used by God to get Paul to Rome eventually. In other words, they're being played. They don't even realize it. These are the religious leaders that should have an in with God. They still have no clue who Paul is and how God is using Paul for his purpose. That these guys are now leading a dead religion and they are getting nowhere and they are getting there quickly. Now, the narrative will now shift down to Caesarea. And all the players are, that is all the played, are now in place and Paul is brought in. At the end of verse 6, they had all got there after some time had happened. They got there the following day after Festus has got there. He is now sitting at the judgment seat and he commands Paul to be brought in. And verse 7 says, and he, when he had come, that is Paul, um, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Now, to the untrained eye, not that my eye is truly trained, Paul would look like this poor, pathetic prisoner who, who looks maybe like he's coming out of this rat hole, you know, being in jail for two years. Maybe not. I had this picture in my mind. That, that again, you see all these religious leaders, you see Festus sitting at the, at, at the, at the judgment seat. <laughs> I was thinking this morning as I'm going over, it's like, hey, whatever happened to Tertullus, man, the big-time lawyer that they had last time? Where's that cat at, man? He probably said, get out of here. Probably slicked his hair back and moved on to the next town. But, but, but you see Paul coming out, and he is not in any kind of 
you know, luxurious. They, they, he probably doesn't have anything but his, his, his garb on that he normally has on. So he looks like a poor, pathetic kind of prisoner coming out in front of all these guys. But yet, Paul is not the underdog here. He might look like he's the underdog here, but he is not the underdog because he is the only one in that place who has the Spirit of God upon him. Though all could be against him, he stands firm. He's in the majority right now because God is on his side. And the Holy Spirit is about to speak for him and through him. And it says that they laid all these serious complaints, grave accusations against Paul, but not one of them. After two years, not one of them could be proven. Now, even though it really doesn't tell us what these accusations are, Paul does give us an idea of what they are where, when he answers for himself in verse 8, where he says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. So they're bringing up these same issues. They've thrown in this one about Caesar, that he's been talking bad about Caesar too. It's the same old, same old. The same accusations. And isn't that ironic that Satan, he has nothing new under the sun. He accuses you of the same kind of things that we do all the time. It's either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. That's all he's got. Because that's the places that we sin all the time. <laughs> so there's nothing new. But they have a new governor. Festus finds himself in a quandary, a dilemma, or should I say a sticky situation, to say the least. <laughs> he may have been thinking, if he knew about the scheme, I should have just brought this guy to Jerusalem and been done with it. But here we see the hand of God all over this whole situation once again. Because it wasn't really up to the prisoner to choose where and when he would be tried. He has no choice in the matter, although he can appeal, and he will appeal. But Festus is playing right into the hand of God when he tells them in verse 9, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem? And there be judged before me concerning these things. Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem? Paul's answer should have been, been there, done that, got the scars to prove it. I don't need to go back to Jerusalem. I've already been tried there and they came up with nothing. Zero. Nothing. Zilcho. But in verse 10, Paul says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jew I have done no wrong, as you very well know. If I have offended, if I am an offender, or have committed something deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, 
No one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. <laughs> As Paul is emboldened here, I have to tell you, I'm emboldened myself. <laughs> Just kind of going, yeah, Paul, you stand up for those rights. <laughs> the reason why Paul declined this proposal to be tried in Jerusalem is obvious. He had experienced so much persecution over there already. He already knew what was expected of him. Again, God had already told them the first time, when you're going, this is what's going to happen. God hasn't said, hey, I want you back over there so they can jack you up again. God hasn't told them that. So obviously, he's saying, I've already been persecuted by my countrymen. Their minds, again, are so full of hostility, prejudice, and misconception still after two years, mind you. And Paul knew that he would not find any justice, much less favor, even if Festus was the judge over there. And any hopes of, of having a fair religious justice system there. He knew, nope, it's right here. I'm sure he remembered that they had plotted against his life. And that's why he's in Caesarea. They removed him from there for his safety. And so to him, it's a no-brainer. No bueno to go. Uh -uh. I ain't going. I don't need to. Paul is under no obligation. If they're giving them the, 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 if they're giving them the option to go, he's under no obligation to return to Jerusalem. God hasn't told him to. He told him he's going to Jerusalem or to, to Rome. And he may have sensed that Festus was only doing this to gratify and pacify the Jews. And so Paul prudently with the Spirit of God, I believe, declined the proposal. And so he's going to appeal to the Roman emperor. He has every right to. He says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. When Paul says that, he means to say that he regarded this tribunal that he is sitting in front of, before whom he stood, on which Festus sat to be the very judgment of Caesar. After all, Festus represents Caesar. Now, the reason why Paul made this declaration that he expresses here, basically he's saying, I am a Roman citizen. I have a right to justice. I am under no obligation to put myself again in the hands of the Jews. I have the right to a fair and impartial trial. I claim the protection and privilege which all Roman citizens have before this tribunal. I have the right of a fair and just doesn't that seem like something you and I as Americans would say? And this is why I feel even more emboldened than ever today. 
<laughs> where we're at as, as a, a, a citizen and as a Christian of what's going on, that we have rights, God-given rights. Those are what we get to have. And so again, guys, I don't mean to, to manipulate Scripture to say, okay, we're going through this stuff right now as a church, so Lord, I, I want to pick and choose. It's like, no, this is where we're at today. And Paul is basically saying, I have these rights. Now, when do we stand up for them? Because other times Paul has said nothing. He's, he's allowed them to beat him up, to put him in prison, to do all these things. But today, in this court, he says, no, not today, Satan. Not today. <laughs> or Festus. <laughs> this was such a severe rebuke of Festus. For even proposing, suggesting to depart from the known justice of the Roman law to give him back to his accusers and let them basically have the rule. That was a complete farce. He understood that. Paul knew his rights. And I think as Americans, again, man, we, we live in a, in a great country. We really do. But know what the law is. Know what the Constitution says. Know what the amendments say. We need to do that. Not so that we can fight the government, but when and if things like this happen, at least we're knowledgeable in what's going on. Paul was knowledgeable in what was happening. He might have seemed like this poor, pathetic prisoner, but he's smarter than all those cats in that room right now. And he is letting them have it, especially Festus. That you would have the audacity to throw me back into the lion's den. No way. You don't need to do that, and I'm not going to go for it. This is where I ought to be judged. Again, Paul is fighting for his rights and his lefts. <laughs> and he understood that he was a Roman citizen. He knew what was, what was afforded to him and basically saying, you ought to be judged, I ought to be judged where I have the right to demand and expect justice. Now, <laughs> you might lose in this day and age as a Christian, but at least you put up a fight in this instance. Unless God has told us, hey, just turn the other cheek. But if he doesn't, then you stand up. Again, we see Jesus do, the, do those things. He tells us, hey, turn to the other cheek in some instances. Other times he says, just go. Go to the slaughter. It's time. And that's fine. Lord, that's the wisdom we need. When do we say something and when do we not say something? And this is what the book of Acts has been teaching me lately in the last few months. I need his wisdom. Paul is basically saying, I have the right to be tried where, where courts are held usually. According to all the forms, all the methods, all the systems of equity, fairness, and justice, where they are commonly observed, that's where I need to be, and this is the place. We have no need to move this, this court. <laughs> 
this hearing. And he says this at the end of verse 10. I have done no wrong. I have done no wrong. As you very well know. Festus, he knew. (laughs) This guy knows what he's doing. Paul, we see the boldness. We see this bold appeal. And in essence, he's saying, I have injured not one person, property, character, or religion. None of that. And so Festus knew that more than likely that Paul had been tried by Felix and nobody could charge this guy. And now Festus finds himself looking at these Jews and seeing their true colors. They just hate him. They want this guy dead. And here's the boldness of the Holy Spirit speaking through a believer of Jesus Christ who is not afraid to die. Again, when you're not afraid to die, what else can they do to you? Nothing. If nothing around here affects you, and death is not even on the table, I could care less. How can they hurt you? Paul is willing to challenge these poor, pathetic priests, (laughs) even though he looks like this poor, pathetic prisoner. And these poor, pathetic priests do not have the guts or the integrity to stand for the truth. But Paul does. And some might think, well, maybe Paul is afraid here because he doesn't really want to die, even though he's saying, it's like, does he sound like a guy who's afraid? Absolutely not. That is the confidence you and I can have because we're not afraid. We should not ever be afraid of anything, what man can do to us. The scriptures tell us that. What can man do to us? If anything, he's going, going back to Jerusalem would be child's play. I'm ready for the big leagues. I'm going to Caesar. Send me to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. And you see, he had every right to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. He was now appealing to the highest court in the land. And in one fell swoop, when Paul said that, he mopped the floor with all the Sanhedrin, all the council. He pulled the rug from under them. He took the winds from their sails. (laughs) He left them holding the cookie jar. Any other idioms you want to throw in there? I love the fact that he appeals to Caesar, and and the word Caesar is actually a title for emperor. The title Caesar in German is Kaiser. In in, In Russian is Tsar. Isn't that interesting? Festus must have thought, dang, I'm in trouble here. Or maybe he thought, okay, he's appealed to Caesar, everything's all good. No, he has something else that he has to deal with. Because he's appealed to Caesar, he has to write out what this this prisoner is being charged for. And there is nothing. Because people hate him? (laughs) Because he lives in people's heads rent-free. And that should be a crime. Especially for two stinking years. (laughs) Verse 13 to the end of the chapter. 
And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left, a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not, is it not, no, it is not the custom of the Romans, Romans to deliver a man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has, ever, and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against them. Therefore, when they had come together, Without any delay, the next day I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought accusations against him of such things as I supposed, but had, not, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I, I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go up to Jerusalem or go to Jerusalem and, and there be judged concerning these matters. But Paul appealed to be, uh, but when Paul appealed to be reserved, for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he is not, was not fit to live any longer. And when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him, send him there. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. This poor guy. You almost want to feel sorry for him. But you also want to go, why didn't you stand up for justice? You know that he's not guilty. You know that these clowns who have come up want to hurt this guy. That's all they want to do. And so this, this portion is just recounting all that we've already kind of gone through here. And, and, but it's be, being recounted by Festus. 
And yet here now we have some new players that are on the scene. And I would like to give you a little bit of history because we'll see them for the next few, in the next chapter at least, the next few chapters, to give us a, a clearer picture as to who these people are. King Agrippa here, that we, that, that's come on the scene, is a Herod. That, that was, that's a title, just like Caesar. Herod was a title. And the Herods had Jewish Hebrew blood in them. And you see, they came through the line of Esau, Isaac's other son, the brother of Jacob. So, so these Herods, all the Herods, had some Jewish blood. And they were given power by the Caesars to oversee the Jews, and, and they were considered Roman rulers. This is King Agrippa II. His dad, Agrippa I, is the one that had put the Apostle James to death and put Peter in prison back in chapter 12 of Acts. His great-grandfather, Herod the Great, was the one that had all the male children, two years and lower and younger, be, be put to death in Jerusalem. Agrippa, King Agrippa II's great uncle, a Herod Antipas, is the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. And he is the same one, King, uh, Herod Agrippa, is the one that Jesus faced right before uh, in the night of his betrayal. King Agrippa I had three kids. Agrippa II, in our text here, Drusilla, who, who is the wife of Felix that we met last study, and Bernice, this other chick that's here. Now, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, Here's a little history on Bernice. <laughs> Quite the character. She was first married to a man named Marcus and later to her uncle Herod, king of Calchas, who soon afterwards died. She later married Palamo, king of Caesarea or, or Cilicia, but deserted him shortly after their wedding. Then she made her way to Jerusalem, where she lived with Agrippa II, with whom she had had and continued to have an incestuous relationship with her brother. Bernice eventually became the mistress of a Roman emperor, Vestus Vestus, the species, and then after him, she became the mistress of his son Titus. <laughs> that is to say, <laughs> Bernice and her sister Drusilla were winners. <laughs> but it says that they were the most corrupt and shameless women of their time. If this is not a reality show, I don't know what is. They're little tramps. That's what they were. <laughs> this is who Paul is, is in front of. And I'm sure he knows their history. And I better hurry. I just looked at the clock here. So, 
So I can almost guarantee you he is not intimidated by any of this. He is not. And, and here, this poor, pathetic prisoner comes in to all this great pomp. And the word pomp in the Greek is fantasia, which means a vain show, fantasy, appearing, uh, showy appearance, display, pomp. And I would add arrogance and haughtiness. Paul may have been a poor, pathetic prisoner, but these were poor, pathetic, pompous prudes. Outwardly, they looked great, but inwardly, they were poor, pathetic, perverted posers. That's all. And it's interesting because the resurrection is what's the main topic once again. And the resurrection is the main topic throughout the book of, 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 of uh, Acts here. And that's who the Sanhedrins are having a problem with because Jesus is the issue here. Not so much Paul. It's who he believes and what he is preaching. That they killed him and they all knew that. And he is saying he is very much alive. Guys, that is the message that we have. Jesus is always the issue. It is his resurrection that separates him from all the others. And this is why Paul stands so confident in who Jesus is and who he is in Christ, and who he serves. And that is the confidence that you and I have today. I don't care what man does. Jesus still lives. He died and he resurrected so that you and I can have eternal life. And guess what? When this life is over, we still have life. And that is why we continue to fight and move forward, regardless of what's going on in our lives. Amen? Went over a little bit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, Lord God. There's so much here, Father. And I just pray that, Lord, we were able to make sense of it, to stand bold in what we believe and who we believe in, Lord God, because you are still alive, Lord. And everything that we see around us will, will one day be done away with, even our own lives here, Lord. These bodies that we live in will go back to the dust. Lord, however it works, Lord God, you know, but it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us, Lord God, the boldness to stand firm. And I ask that, God, you would minister to those in this room, those who are watching online right now, Lord God, that you would be ministering to them as well, Lord God, that we would continue to bring the, the message to all the people that we come in contact with. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this last song. Bless you guys.